Okay, if you want to be turning in your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 20, which is where we've got to, we shall pick up from there in just a moment. Okay, so we've come as far now in our journey to Genesis, looking at the, the life of Abraham, uh, and we're going to just make this kind of transition as we start to, to look at Isaac, and you see Isaac born and come on to, to the scene. Uh, through these chapters that we're going to try and look at this morning. So, uh, the first thing I just want to remind us of is this great scripture we have from Second Peter. And it just says this, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1, uh, sorry, verse 3, it says, According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. And verse 4 says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You see, God promises a way of living this life differently. We were talking quite a lot about that last week, the choice that we have that is before us as to how we choose to live our lives. And this verse tells us that we can escape that uh, corruption, the, the way that the world has... Uh, chosen to live. And part of the, the reason that's possible is because we've been given these exceedingly great and precious promises. Now, the promises themselves are, are wonderful that we find in God's Word, but what makes them exceedingly great and precious is the one who has given them. They're not given by someone who would let us down. They're not given by a friend or something. These are given by God Himself, a God who does not and cannot change. And we're going to see this morning, God fulfilled promises that he'd given to Abraham. But seemingly, Abraham had come to that place of almost maybe thinking that it wasn't now going to happen. What we saw a couple of weeks ago, looking as Abraham has sat down in the, the plains of Mamre and his visitors come to him. You know, seemingly no longer striving after the fulfillment of these promises that God had given. And suddenly God just turns up and says, you know what, Abraham, I'm going to do this now. Well, we're kind of a year on from that in our journey as we're going to chapter 20. And we read verse 1, And Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar. Now, Abraham had been dwelling in Hebron. That's where we've seen him. Hebron, just a, a little bit um, to the west and to the north of the, the Dead Sea as it is now, and clearly from where he had been dwelling, he would have been able to see the effects of what we read about in chapter 19, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're told, that this chapter starts, and Abraham journeyed from thence, and it's, like, it's almost like a, a follow-on. Because of what was going on, maybe the, the smoke that was ascending from the cities, maybe the memory of that was just hard for Abraham. Um, Whatever reason, he chooses now to leave that place of Hebron where he'd been dwelling for, for some time. And again, this place that he's going to uh, is what we would know now as the, the land of the Philistines. If you look on a map, you can see there Hebron, almost in the center, just to the side, as I said, the west of the, the Dead Sea. And he kind of travels from there across to Gerar. And we're going to see him move eventually from Gerar and go down to, to Beersheba, just journeying around elsewhere in Hebrews and so on, that Abraham didn't have a permanent dwelling. He, he didn't make this world his home. He was just a visitor, and he kind of knew that he was a visitor. 
He looked for a city whose builder and maker is God and was content to dwell in tents. You know, there is a, a great lesson for there for us because so often we try to put roots down. And there's nothing wrong with having a bit of stability in life, but not at the expense of our relationship with God. You know, we should be in a place where we are so willing just to let go of everything and just to get up and follow Jesus wherever he calls us, at whatever time he calls us. Verse 2 says, And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, this is one of those situations that there's a lot of different views and comments made in the commentaries. Bill Cooper actually in the um, commentary on uh, or his um, book The Authenticity of Genesis talks about this uh, and says actually this was very much a custom at this time and gives a number of historical examples and a lot of commentators will look at this and say that Abraham was being very disobedient and blah, 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 which there's some truth in that and we'll, we'll touch on some of those things but at the same time it wasn't entirely unknown or uncommon that people would be in a situation that they would effectively not only be married to somebody, but they would be uh, in that relationship as well as family. Um, so he's saying, she is my sister. Now, we look at the relationship that we've seen already. Um, Terah was Abraham's dad. We obviously had those three sons, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Uh, but he also had a daughter, which is this lady called Sarah, who later becomes Sarah. And it's, that's the relationship. So, in one sense, Abraham is right, because there is a biological connection there as well. She is a half-sister of his. We're going to see, of course, their offspring, Ishmael, um, through um, Hagar, and then Isaac, um, through Sarah, the child of promise. Um, Nahor, just while we're looking at this family tree, uh, will have a, a son called Bethuel, and many others. And then Haran had Milka, Iskar, and Lot. And of course, that relationship we see with Lot and Abraham, we've explored that already. Bethuel, well, he's going to have um, a daughter and a son, Rebecca and Laban. Uh, well, Rebecca is going to be the one who ends up marrying Isaac. And then we're going to see Isaac and Rebecca have their two sons, Esau and Jacob. And it's Jacob who then ends up marrying. Leah and Rachel, as he goes and lives with Uncle Laban for a time. So that's kind of the family tree as we have it, as it stands. So, and it's obviously from Jacob, um, that Leah and, Leah and Rachel, that we get the 12 tribes. And we mentioned previously as well that from Lot came the tribes of Moab and Ammon um, through the relationship uh, with his daughters, which we touched on last time. So verse 3, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, Thou art but a dead man, for the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech could not come near her, and he said, Lord, will thou slay also a righteous nation? Now, there's a couple of interesting things here. Firstly, Sarah at this point is some 90 years old. And Abimelech, and by the way, that title Abimelech is actually a title, effectively means king. Uh, the Melech in, in the Hebrew uh, is, uh, has the idea of being a king. Um, so he had some other name, John, Charles, or whatever, but his title was Abimelech. Um, and he sees Sarah. Now, she's a 90-year-old lady, but obviously still very good-looking, very attractive, and he decides that he's going to take her seemingly, as had happened previously down in Egypt, into her harem. Now, the incredible thing is Abraham does the same thing again. But the other interesting thing here is that Abimelech, obviously nothing's happened, no relationship has taken place between Abimelech and Sarah. 
But Abimelech responds to God in a very familiar way. Abimelech, they're not coming, he said, Lord, will thou also slay a righteous nation? Now, what does that tell us? It, well, it tells us a lot because it shows that the knowledge of God was prevalent at this time. That throughout this whole region, because he doesn't kind of question who God is. In fact, he even speaks about the fact that God is a righteous God. Which I think is just very interesting. We're often given a, a picture that's painted by the critics that tells us that the what the geodo geodo Christian faith, the, the, what we have based our uh, lives on in that sense, uh, was something that was unknown at this time, uh, with the exception of just a, you know, a few Abraham and so on. But clearly, even just from this, we see that there was a knowledge of God through this time. We spoke previously about Melchizedek who seemingly was a line of kings and priests that were living and ruling in Jerusalem for a thousand years during this era of history. So the knowledge of God, as we really would expect following the time of the flood, that everybody knew of God. And what we started to see was people then twisting and perverting that knowledge of God. Verse 5, we carry on. and We read, Said he not unto me, so Abimelech speaking of what Abraham had said, She is my sister. And she even, she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands have I done this. So Abimelech's pleading his case before God and said, I didn't know and nobody told me. I was deceived effectively. And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou did this in the integrity of thy heart. For I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. Now, just a, one point I want to highlight here is that God withheld Abimelech from committing this sin. And I just think there's an interesting thing there because God is able to keep us from falling. We read that great verse in Jude, don't we? He's able to present us for his glory without spot, without blemish. You see, God's grace is sufficient. And we need to learn, and we'll talk more about God's grace as we go through this morning. But God's grace was sufficient in this situation to prevent Abimelech doing something that would have caused all sorts of issues and problems. And in this context, seemingly would have brought God's wrath against him. But God is always sufficient. You know, we are never tempted, we're told in Scripture. Paul tells us, beyond that which we are able. But with every temptation, there comes a way of escape. Well, such is the case here. Verse 7, now therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet. I just want to highlight that because we're going to see this played out uh, dramatically uh, very shortly. And you think, well, what did Abraham say that was prophetic? Well, there's a number of things specifically, but we'll, we'll see as we move on an incredible statement that Abraham will make uh, that is clearly prophetic in nature. But here, God himself declares Abraham a prophet. And he says, and he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. Now, we've seen this already, we'll talk a bit more, but we see Abraham here acting potentially as intercessor. This is what's being said. We saw that on behalf of Lot. And he says, and he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. And if thou restore her not, know that thou shalt surely die, thou and all that are thine. Therefore Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their ears, and the men were sore afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, What hast thou done unto us? 
And what have I offended thee that thou hast brought on me and my kingdom a great sin and hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done? And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What sawest thou that thou hast done this thing? It's an interesting question. He's saying, you know, what was it that led you to make this statement to effectively deceive me and put me in this predicament? And again, it's interesting when we look at Abraham's response because Abraham said, because I thought. You see, Abraham didn't pray and get the Lord's direction, leading and guiding on this. Because I thought, he says. Surely the fear of God is not in this place. Well, I would suggest already he's wrong. Because what we've seen is that there was some sort of fear of God. There was certainly a knowledge of God. And the moment God speaks to Abimelech, immediately he changes the situation. And he calls all of his people together. And they're afraid too. You see, there's a danger that we make assumptions about what other people think. And particularly in regard to the situation with God. You see, very often, our concern about what other people may think will stop us from actually speaking to them about God. Or being open about our own situation about the relationship that we have with God. You know, just like Abraham, sometimes we would rather avoid confrontation, avoid conflict. Let's not tell them that we're Christians because of what might happen. And that's effectively what Abraham does right here. Now, he says, Surely the fear of God is not in this place, it's what he thought, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. And yet indeed she is my sister. Now he kind of tries to justify the statement. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So, trying to explain the situation. But Proverbs 29, 25 makes it very clear. The fear of man brings a snare. So Abraham brought about a problem that really didn't need to exist. And, you know, we sing, don't we, in that great hymn. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to him in prayer. And so often the fear of man does bring a snare. And very often we're wrong in our assumption or our assessment of what others are thinking or feeling or what they may or may not do. It has been said before that if you fear God, you'll fear nothing else. I kind of like that. Because actually if we, we fear God, if God really is first, if we're seeking him, then really well, what can man do to us? What could, what could happen? If God is first... If our relationship with God is right. And bear in mind all the promises that God has given to Abraham as he comes into this situation. You know, I want you to really kind of impress this point. If you make notes, make this the, the kind of the first really important note that you're going to write down. Because the point is that God gives us promises. We need to believe them. What is it that God had told Abraham back in chapter 12? I'm going to turn. You see exactly what God said to Abraham. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now does this scenario here in chapter 20 seem like Abraham believed that promise? Not quite at this point. Now, I'm not trying to be... And duly critical or harsh of Abraham because none of us would have fared any better. In fact, Abraham is constantly pointed to in Scripture as being a role model for us. Somebody who was a great man of faith. But even someone like Abraham 
can sometimes lose sight of the wonderful promises that God has given and get to the place where actually we become fearful of what others might say or they might think. And so we act accordingly. Well, the lesson, of course, is to believe the promises that God has given. Do you you believe that God will never leave you or forsake you? Do you believe that God has begun a good work in you and he will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ? Do you believe the promise we were looking at earlier from from Peter that that we can be persuaded that he's able to keep that which we've committed unto him against that day? I mean, they are incredible promises. No less incredible than the promises given to Abraham. But again, so often we allow the natural circumstances to affect what we're thinking. How often are we afraid of what man might say rather than thinking about and concentrating on what God can actually do. So we carry on, verse 13. And it came to pass that when God caused me to wander from my father's house, this is Abraham speaking, that I said to her, this is to Sarah, this is thy kindness which thou shalt show unto me at every place whither we shall come. Save me, he is my brother. So this kind of puts into context that what happened down in Egypt and what's happened here in the Philistine country was actually something they'd already discussed, and this is the way they were going to go about things. And what's interesting here is that we read that Abimelech took sheep and oxen and men's servants and women's servants and gave them unto Abraham and restored him Sarah, his wife. Well, that kind of gives you a a little snippet of the, the esteem with which Abraham was held by Abimelech. I mean, clearly, Abimelech felt that he'd been deceived a little bit here, and put in a very awkward situation that he didn't really want to be in, and it really wasn't of his choosing. But he doesn't just cast Abraham out. He actually gives him gifts. So there's obviously a, a stronger bond and relationship going on here. And as I said, that whole idea, as we see presented in verse 13, about um, Sarah being presented as his sister, there's there's more, as again, if you want to, to look into the, the historical element of that, I encourage you to look at Bill Cooper's book particularly on this uh, section, because it's very interesting what he puts forward, and particularly linked in with verse 13, where we see these gifts are given. So maybe it's not quite all that we've maybe assumed in the past, this kind of relationship and the reasons Abraham said these things. But nevertheless, there's clearly that element of Abraham taking his eye off the promise, I believe, at that moment. So verse 15, And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before thee. Dwell where it pleaseth thee. And unto Sarah he said, Behold, I have given thee, I've uh, given thy brother, a, notice what he says there, I've given thy brother. You see, he accepts that situation once it's been explained to him. Um, I've I, I given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes unto all that are with thee, and with all others, and with all other. And she was reproved. So, interesting here, because there's a, a foreshadowing of, I guess, us. Because Jesus said that the meek shall inherit the earth. Who was he speaking of? Well, those who have been willing to lay aside their rights to themselves and to put their trust in Jesus. Those who are content to be meek, realizing our own inadequacies, our own weakness, and our need for a savior. But what is it the scripture tells us? That we will come back with Jesus when he returns at the second coming. He will establish his kingdom. He'll rule over this earth for a thousand years. And we're told that we will reign with him. Now, why am I I saying this? Because Abraham is in a situation that Abimelech says, Behold, my land 
Whose land? This is all God's land. And it's the land that back in chapter 12, reiterated in chapter 15, has been promised to Abraham and his descendants forever. So it's a, a bit of like, a bit of like here is saying, well, this is my land, you can dwell wherever you want. And Abraham's thinking, well, actually, it's, it's mine. It hasn't actually been all given to me yet, but God has already said that this is mine. And it's a little bit like now. There was a Christian bumper sticker some years ago, I remember seeing. It said, laugh now, but one day we'll rule the world. It's true. Christians will. That's exactly what the Bible says. That we're going to, we'll be given positions of authority. The Bible speaks of us being able to judge angels. I can't imagine that kind of, you know, we, we tend to think of a hierarchy and angels somewhere way above us, but actually from a created order, Adam was created above the angels. And we're told that the saints will be in a position that we will judge angels. And Paul makes the argument, therefore, we should at least be able to manage and deal with internal disputes in the church. Sadly, so many Christians can't do that, but that's what we should be able to do. But it's interesting, again, this is my land, because actually it was Abraham's land. It just hadn't yet been realized at that point. The same as this land now, this world, it's that which has been promised to, to, to the meek of the earth. And again, unto, seriously, behold, I have given thy brother, I mentioned that, this relationship clearly Abimelech accepts. The other thing I want to just highlight here is this issue of covering. It is, behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes. Now, actually, I think what the implication here is, because it's something we see throughout Scripture, that Abraham was to be a covering, not for Sarah's eyes, but for the eyes of other people. The people should immediately be able to look at Sarah and see that this woman was married. That she had a, a covering, in a sense. It was a covering for others' eyes that they wouldn't look at her because she was married. It's a little bit like today we wear wedding rings. You know, I proudly wear my wedding ring every day. It just, just about comes off if I, you know, pull it really hard, but my finger gets hurt for doing so. So I don't want it to come off. It's where it lives. And it's a declaration that I'm married. Joy wears a wedding ring. You know, and, and it's there so that people know that we are married. It's not there to remind me that I'm married. I know that. It's there to remind other people or to show other people. And what a wedding ring, one of the things a wedding ring does is to show, show other people that we're off limits. Sadly, in today's world, sometimes that doesn't have the same impact that it really should do. But that's the purpose of something like a wedding ring for us. Well, in the same way, so Abraham should have been this covering for his wife. There's a really interesting section, actually, you can turn with me if you want to, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it's, it's one of those passages that's often misunderstood and misapplied. Beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it speaks all about this idea of coverings and the importance of it. Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1 says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Verse 2, now, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances I delivered them unto you. But I would have you know. Now, Paul is going to give us the key to the whole of this section. That the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. Let me ask you a very simple question. Is Christ any less than God? Of course not. Absolutely not. But for the sake of the order, 
that is stated here. Christ is prepared to be under the covering, if you like, of God. Is woman any less than man? No. Not at all. Not in any way. But for the sake of the order, this is what God has ordained. And then we we get these verses, every man praying or prophesying with his head covered, dishonors his head. Who is man's head? Christ. We've already been told. We've given the, the code. So if we pray or prophesy without that authority of Christ above us, we're dishonoring Christ. But every woman that prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Who have, we, who have we been told is the head of the woman? The man. So if a woman prays or prophesies without the authority of her husband, then it's dishonoring to her husband. Um, there's a number of things. Because it goes on, it speaks about men having long hair. And a lot of people kind of draw from this that women should typically wear hats. And if you want to, that's fine. That's not a problem. But that's not what this is saying. This is speaking about authority. And one of the keys here, when it speaks about men having long hair, I mean, yes, Paul uses some cultural examples at the time. No question about that. But let me ask you a very simple question. Does God say that it's wrong for men to have long hair? No. What about people like Samson, the vow of a Nazarite, was to allow your hair to grow? What about people like Absalom? He only got his hair cut once a year because of the weight of it. It just got too heavy. Does God change? No. So we don't suddenly get to the New Testament and God says, well, men can't have long hair and ladies who wear hats. Sadly, some people interpret this as such. This is all speaking about coverings. It's speaking about authority. Coming back to this chapter, this verse we're looking at, Abraham should have been the covering for his wife and should have been proud to be so. And by doing so, it would have been a sign to other people. Let's move on. And just to say again, that idea of coverings is actually founded in Eden. And we could talk more some other time about that. Verse 17, so Abraham prayed unto God and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants and they bear children. Now this is interesting. It gives you an indication of how long they've been there. I mean, they obviously haven't just turned up and this happened within the first couple of days. Because then we read this, For the Lord had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So because of this situation, God had stopped the women in Abimelech's realm from bearing children. But now Abraham prays again, just as he prayed before. We saw him praying for Lot, interceding. And Abraham knew how to pray. We've already seen that. That he came to God humbly. He came to God because of God's greatness, because of who God is. He pleaded with God because of God's character. And he believed God. We're told that God accounted it to him for righteousness. God had in Abraham somebody that believed. Now, again, as we've already said, it's easy to sometimes forget those things. We need to continue to remind ourselves. But it's just interesting here that God clearly can open closed wombs. And this is one of those chapters that you kind of read it and it's almost, if you're doing an overview of the Bible, it's not one of the chapters you're going to include. You, you, I mean, you, you just skip over this and get on to the next bit. Because there's some interesting things maybe, but you know, hopefully we've drawn some stuff out of that that's helpful. But what's the point of the chapter? Would you remember that a year before this, Abraham had been visited and told that he was going to have this son? And here we're in this situation and bear in mind, what's happened is that Abraham has been visited by the Oaks of Mamre. The Lord himself comes and says, Sarah is going to bear a child. 
immediately the angels go off, we see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then Abraham moves to this place within a couple of months. So I'm just guessing here that we're probably somewhere about three months after the Lord has appeared to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre. So it's about this point that Sarah conceives. And I think it's really interesting because God, I think, gives here an object lesson to Abraham and to Sarah. Because they realize, obviously, what's gone on here. Because, obviously, Abraham prays, and we told them. God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants and so on, and they bear children. And suddenly, what may have seemed so far away from Abraham and Sarah, the concept, the reality that they could actually have children, suddenly they realize this is about what God can do. And this couple that are getting on in years decide to trust God and they conceive. And that leads us nicely into the next chapter. And we read, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken, for Sarah conceived. Now we jump forward nine months and bear Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded. And we've said already that the eighth day is the best time medically. It's when the clotting elements in the blood are at their peak. It's the best time. Uh, if you're going to do something like this, a circumcision, it's the best day for it to be done. Abraham simply being obedient, following God's instruction at this point. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me to laugh. I mean, that was, she just so desired children, and now God has blessed her with her own child. So that all that here will laugh with me. She's not just, just laughing, this is overjoyed. And all those that knew Sarah would have been overjoyed as well. And she said, who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck, for I have borne him a son in his old age. Now, one of the reasons maybe that Abimelech looks at Sarah and she seems so attractive as a 90-year-old lady is because at that point she hadn't had children because children have an aging effect on his parents. I think you'll agree, those who've had children. But she now is in this position. And we find that this name Isaac is actually given by God. Back in chapter 17, as God comes and visits Abraham, as you remember, they're in, Sarah was in the tent and God said that they were going to have this, this child. And Sarah laughs laughs in kind of disbelief that it couldn't happen at that point. And God says, well, you know what? You're going to call your baby laughter to remind you of this. And, of course, it's applicable in both ways because, A, she laughed in that kind of disbelief, but then now she's laughing out of just being overjoyed. And so this child is named Isaac. And it's interesting because God has already stated that Abraham's descendants, this line that is going to come down, this, this line that is going to be blessed and be a blessing to the world would come through Isaac. That is so important to understand at this point in Abraham's life. And it's important that we understand that before we get to the next chapter. Because you start to understand the faith that Abraham had when he realized that God, even if Isaac had been killed, would have to raise him up again because the offspring had been promised to come through Isaac. 
Now the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. We'll come back to that weaning in just a second, and there's an important element here. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. I want to highlight this point, because this really is an important point, that Abraham finds a situation that his firstborn son, Ishmael, is now effectively persecuting Isaac. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. Now Paul in the book of Galatians actually makes a really big point of this. This verse is quoted. Because this is a, a, a great parallel to speak of the difference between works and grace. And we'll come back to that in just a while. Now, I want to highlight here, because there's a little quandary that, that some people kind of find. Uh, if you look into the scripture and start digging a bit deeper, you'll start to uncover some what seem to be inconsistencies until you find, actually, this is all part of God's wonderful plan. In Exodus 12, we read this. Now, the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was four 130 years. Okay, get that number, 430. And that's the time that we're told we get to the uh, the end of this sojourning. And we're told it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the self-same day, on the very day. And it came to pass all the hosts of the Lord went out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so this period of sojourning comes to an end of 430 years. Now, the majority of commentators and Bible teachers will tell you that this 430 years was spent in Egypt. They'll tell you, without actually looking at the details, that the 30 years at the beginning of this period must have been that period where it was kind of happy and peaceful with Joseph and so on, and then we must have got into that time of bondage. That's not the case. I'll show you. Genesis 15, you remember, when Abraham is put to sleep and God confirms that covenant with him, he said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. So we've got two periods, four hundred and four thirty. And also that nation whom they shall serve, will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance. That last line, verse 14, clearly speaking of Egypt. But everybody assumes that the first part of this verse, or verse 13, is also speaking about Egypt, and it's not the case. You see, throughout their journeying for Abraham, for Isaac, for Jacob they were living in a land that wasn't theirs Galatians 3.17 is interesting because we read this Paul speaking says and this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after cannot disannul that it should make the promise of no effect. Paul referring to this period of 430 years. And he tells us that the conclusion of the 430 years is the giving of the law, which of course happened after they'd left Egypt and they arrived at Sinai. So we know that this covenant that's established began 430 years earlier. And so we find that the starting point of this covenant is the confirmation that God was going to bring blessing upon Abraham. That's when the 430 years starts. When was it confirmed? As I said already. When Abraham began that sojourn at the age of 75. It's when God calls Abraham. In Acts 7 verse 6, Stephen helps a little bit more. And God spoke on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil 400 years. 
And again, everybody assumes this all takes place in Egypt. That's not the case. You see, because the 400 years of vexation began 30 years after Abraham entered Canaan. And this is why I'm including this this morning, when Isaac was weaned. This stage that Isaac gets to, at age of about five years old, when he's weaned, is the moment that Ishmael begins, if you like, persecution. This is the moment that this bondage that's spoken of, this uh, oppression begins for Abraham's seed, this vexing of Abraham's seed, effectively. Again, first of all, it starts at the hand of Ishmael and continues. And there's many, many scriptures that we find throughout the book of Genesis that confirm this. Now, just to show you the numbers, Isaac's born when Abraham is 100. Isaac's weaned at the age of five and the vexation of that seed begins then. This is the verse that we've been looking at in our text this morning. Adam Clark in his commentary says this, From Abraham's entry into Canaan to the birth of Isaac was 25 years. Isaac was 60 years old at the birth of Jacob. And Jacob was 130 they're going down to Egypt, which three sons make 215 years. So there's 215 years from the point of the covenant being given when Abraham's 75 years old to the point that they go down to Egypt. And then Jacob and his children, having continued in Egypt 215 years more, the whole sum of 430 years is regularly completed. It's a very interesting study. There's lots more that comes out of that, just so you see it. Again, Abraham's 75 when God makes that promise. 25 years between the promise and the birth of Isaac. And then we've got that 60 years between Isaac's birth and Jacob's birth. And then 130 years or 130 years of age is Jacob when he goes down to Egypt. Uh, All of this we work it out and you very clearly see that it's 215 years from Abraham to Jacob going down into Egypt. No problems. Some people throw this out as an error or contradiction. It's not so at all. But the important thing to note from the text this morning is we, we kind of miss sometimes quite how important this issue is as Ishmael starts persecuting Isaac at this point. And we read, and the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. Okay? So he's got a real dilemma because we've got Ishmael who's doing the persecuting and we've got Isaac that's being persecuted. And of course, Abraham's the dad of both of them. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah has said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. The resurrection here again, that Isaac is going to be the one through whom that seed is going to come. And also the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation. Because he is thy seed. So there's a promise given to Hagar to Ishmael. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child and sent her away. And they departed, and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So they've just gone down a little bit. Probably Hagar was heading back towards Egypt. That's where we see last time she ran away. That's where she was heading. And we read, and the water was spent in the bottle, and she cast the child under one of the shrubs. And she went and sat down over against, a good way off, and as it were, a bow shot. For she said, let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him, and lift up her voice, and wept. She's concerned that they're just going to die of hunger or dehydration. And God heard the voice of the lad, and it's interesting, they heard the voice of the lad. Not just of Hagar here, but it's the lad seemingly 
either just crying or crying out to God. And the angel of God called Hagar out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him in thine hand, for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the, uh, the lad drink. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, I've used this a number of times. I've said of Oswald Chambers that he quoted that, you know, God can turn the circumstances around in two seconds when he chooses. And it's true. That well of water didn't just suddenly appear. It was there. But she hadn't seen it. And so often the solutions to the problems that we face are there right before us. But it takes God opening our eyes to realize and to see. This is why we have to trust God's promises. Because our natural eyes fail us. And God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took him, a wife, out of the land of Egypt. So they've gone back down, and Hagar's found a wife, found a wife for Ishmael. And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the chief captain of his host, spoke unto Abraham, saying, God is with thee in all that thou doest. I love this, because this is that unmerited favor at work in the life of the believer. You see, Abraham is just kind of happily minding that they're still obviously dwelling and living next to Abimelech in the area. They haven't moved away yet. And Abimelech comes up and says, God's really with you, isn't he? Have you ever had that? Have you ever been in a situation where someone will comment to you about your walk with God? And it kind of takes you by surprise because you sometimes think, I didn't even really think they'd noticed or I hadn't said anything or... It's a wonderful thing. Oswald Chambers makes this comment. He says, most of us live only within the level of consciousness, consciously serving and consciously devoted to God. And he says, this shows immaturity and the fact that we're not yet living the real Christian life. Maturity is produced in the life of a child of God on the unconscious level until we become so totally surrendered to God that we are not even aware of being used by him. That's where Abraham's at now. You know, people are looking at him saying, God's really with you. And he's like, I didn't say anything. But you see, if God is working in our lives, there's a natural overflow. People will see it. People will see something about us that's different. And often they comment on those things because they don't have that. And clearly we see Abraham's friends make this comment. We read, now therefore swear unto me, Hear by God that thou wilt not deal falsely with me, nor with my son, nor with my son's son, but according to the kindness that I have done unto thee, thou should do unto me, and to the land wherein thou hast sojourned. Notice again, sojourning. This is not their home, they're just journeying. It's not until Joshua comes back in, some 400 years later, that this becomes their land. Abraham's just sojourning for now, as Isaac will, as Jacob will. And Abraham said, I will swear. And Abraham reproved Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had violently taken away. There'd been this scuffle over a well they'd found and Abraham brings this matter up. And Abimelech said, I didn't know anything about it. I want not who's done this thing. Neither didst thou tell me. You haven't told me. Neither heard I of it but today. So only today I found out about this is what Abimelech's saying. And Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them unto Abimelech and both of them made a covenant. There's a lot of sheep and oxen going one way or another. One's giving one of them back and so on. And they make this agreement, this covenant. And Abraham sent seven ewe lambs of the flock 
by themselves. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What mean these seven ewe lambs which thou hast set by themselves? And he said, For these seven ewe lambs shall thou take of my hand, that they may be a witness unto me that I have digged this well. Wherefore he called the place Beersheba, because there they swore, both of them. They make this agreement. And Abraham calls this place where he's found this other well, they've digged this well, this is mine, he's saying. He sends these sheep back. These seven sheep, because the idea is, or the, the name Beersheba is a playing word. There were seven wells there. And so these seven sheep are sent back as like a reminder of Abimelech. By the way, this is mine. This is these are my wells, my cattle and my servants and so on. And thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech rose up and Phicol, the chief captain of his host, and they returned into the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba, and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And we're told, verse 34, that Abraham sojourned in the Philistines' land many days. But again, just that verse 33, what a wonderful statement. Abraham planted his grove, his place of seven wells, and called there on the name of the Lord. Abraham's done that a number of times in his journey. But this time we read, called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. You know, I think as Abraham's growing in his journey, he's realizing that God won't leave him, that the promises of God really are true, that God is faithful, that God will never abandon him. And through all of this journey, through this time in the land of the Philistines, there's been these subtle and gentle reminders to Abraham of the promises that God has given, that God is faithful, that the land will be Abraham's, that that promise of the child has now come to fruition. We know in our lives God is doing those things. God has done things even with us as a fellowship. You know, us meeting here, we were hearing this morning. You know, not just an accident, not just a decision that somebody made. This is part of what God is doing. God fulfills his plan and his purposes in our lives. And what he calls us to do is to be obedient and to keep looking to him. Not to think outside the box, as it were, and make our own decisions about what other people make think and act accordingly, but to trust him, to trust in his promises. Well, next week we'll journey on into chapter 22. And of course, it's one of the most magnificent chapters in Scripture. It's where we see, of course, this challenge laid before Abraham as God calls him to effectively give up his son. This this son that had been promised and We'll talk about the faith that Abraham has to be obedient to God.